Good morning. I don't know how to follow that kid's video that's more profound than anything I have planned to say. It's great. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you do have a Bible, do you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1? It's perhaps a little grand to call this an Emmanuel series to, in some ways because this is basically the one week of that series before next week with the Christmas series, but the Christmas carols. But it's good to spend some time just looking forward. And Christians obviously call this time of year Advent. That would be a, a very common term in our culture. And Advent is that period of waiting and longing and anticipation for Jesus to come back and set all things right and make everything well and to be our judge and our king and to restore order and to make the world beautiful again. And that's what we're longing for in this period. But in Britain, this period of the year is not a period of waiting at all because our calendar is governed not by the church but by the marketplace. So you might find people, for instance, start celebrating Christmas before December's even started. Anybody in this room want to own up to putting their decorations up in November? I've had four so far in four, four sites this morning. I've spoken today. No one in this room is going to be bold enough to say I'm one of those people. Okay, so, but a, a lot of, basically, we don't, uh, what we'll often find is we don't wait for Christmas. And in fact, shops, the first shop I saw this year was in late October, was Christmas decorations up, trees, tinsel in late October. I was walking with my son at the time. And he's 11 and autistic, and he calls it as he sees it, uh, quite loudly sometimes. And so we're just walking through a shopping center. And he said, Dad, that shop's already got their Christmas decorations up, and it's not even Halloween yet. And I said, I know that, Zeke. And he went, ridiculous. And I thought, I know he's got that word from me. Um, but it's fun. But actually, the, the marketplace doesn't wait. That's not what happens in Britain. The idea of waiting, pausing, hoping, longing, desiring is kind of lost from the calendar. But in the church, the period of Advent is a period of waiting. And actually, the Bible is a period of waiting, a period of anticipating. You think, if you've ever done this, you just pick up a Bible and open it. Right now, some of you have got it in front of you. You've opened the Bible to Matthew chapter 1, and you'll see that three quarters of the Bible is behind you. As in, 75% of the Bible happens before the arrival of Jesus. And you'll find that even in Matthew chapter 1, which you've probably, again, got open in front of you, three quarters of the chapter is about waiting for Jesus, and it's only three quarters of the way through that Jesus finally arrives. The Bible's quite like that. History's quite like that. We are now in an age where we are waiting for and longing for the return of Jesus. There's a lot of waiting built in, and so as we read this genealogy, my guess, guess is that most of us don't memorize genealogies, and a lot of us find them quite boring. But in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. With hearing and waiting and saying, okay, waiting sometimes is a bit boring. I've got to anticipate the day when finally Jesus comes. And you're going to find as we read this chapter that three quarters of it happens waiting for Jesus before he finally shows up. And so that's what happens in this passage. In the end, Emmanuel, God with us, will arrive. But we're going to do a lot of waiting before we do. And we're going to read the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And as we're doing that, just consider, if you can see, there are five women who appear in this passage. Can you spot them, and can you spot what they have in common as we read it? There's something unusual about all five of them. I wonder if you can see what that is. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. So most of us probably find genealogies a bit boring. Would that be fair? Just a long list. It seems like a random list of names, and for many of us, lists are not very interesting, and names are not very interesting, so a list of names is a bit of a double header. Now, in some cultures, and you might be from a culture like this, where names matter a lot more. And so, actually, you might see a more significance in that. I just had a conversation with someone in the church earlier today, like, about, all about the meaning of your name and what it means and why it's special and meaningful. But in a lot of cultures, and the kind of culture I'm from, names don't seem to mean that much to people. And it's a comment we often make here, because in the Bible, the meaning of names is extremely high. It matters an awful lot that Jesus' parents are called Mary and Joseph, and that Joseph means he adds and is the name of another man who also went down to Egypt fleeing there in order to save his family. Because that's exactly what Jesus' father Joseph will do, to flee to Egypt to save his family. And it matters a lot that Jesus' mother is called Mary or Mariam, and that that name means bitter, which is a name that, we, that they, she was given because there'd been a long, long period of suffering and bitterness while waiting for God to come and bring deliverance. And that Ma- she is named after another woman called Miriam, or Miriam, who also, like Mary, ended up rescuing a baby boy from being killed by an evil king who was trying to wipe them all out. So Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, if you know the Exodus story, you'll go, I know this story. I know a story about a Joseph going down to Egypt to run away, and I know a story about a Mary who rescued a little boy from I know this one. The names are very significant in the story. And in throughout the Bible, and the same is true of the names of Jesus here, that the Son of God is given three names, Jesus, Christ, and Emmanuel. 
And each one of them is like a one-word summary of the gospel. Jesus, God saves his people from their sin. Christ, the anointed king. Emmanuel, God with us. So in each one of these cases, the names are very, very meaningful. And so names themselves are important, and also the list of names we've just read is not random at all. It's not like a reading the phone book and saying, here's all the people that ever had Jesus as a descendant. It's actually a very selective list of names. Matthew's missed a lot of people out, because he's trying to, and ancient genealogies always did that. They well, almost always did that. They would try and track lots, of, make the connection for you, but say, well, I'm not going to tell you them all. I'm going to try and help you remember it by highlighting particularly important people. And I think we do the same. So I, I have, a, have a think, how many of, turn to the person next to you and say, this is, I'm, I'm gonna, this is how many of my great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers I can name. Okay? So go back three generations for you. How many of your great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers can you name? You, you might not know any, by the way, because you might not know who your parents were. That's fine. But you might be able to name some, and you may not be able to name all. But on a scale of naught to eight, how many do you have? Just ch- tell the person next to you how many you think you have. Okay, so has anybody got naught? Anyone got naught? Right, quite a few. Has anybody got between one and four? One, 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 two, three, four. Has anybody got five or six? Has anybody got seven or eight? So nobody in this room knows the name of all of their great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers. I didn't either. It's just quite interesting, isn't it? Three ge- this has gone back 50 generations. We go back three, and we're already stumped on some of them. I am. Same thing happened to me. But interestingly, what I suspect happens is that we remember only particular generations and particular lines of the family because they've probably got some particular significance to us. For instance, they might be the person from whom we get our last name. We might remember that person. Or we might remember a person who made a particularly important geographical move. So if the reason why we live in this country is because a great-grandfather moved, we probably remember that person. Or if they did something particularly noble, if they won a medal, or if they won a great prize, or if they were a big politician, we might know them. So I went through this process, and I realized that I immediately knew the name of one of my great-grandfathers, because, and here's my little fact for the day, my great-grandfather proposed to Agatha Christie. Do you know what? I heard an intake of breath from somebody, and I don't know who it was, but thank you for expressing interest in that story. You are the only person out of a thousand people I've told that story to today who went, (gasps) but I'm really pleased for it. And she wrote in her autobiography, I still feel like the devil of ingratitude not to have married him. My great-grandfather, thank you, my great-grandfather, ladies and gentlemen. So, I remember him, his name was Wilfred Pirrie, and I know who he is. But while preparing this message, I realized that one of my great-grandfathers, I didn't even know his name. So I had to get in touch with my mum and say, who is dad's mum's dad? I don't know who that is. So in other words, what we do is we tend to remember very significant or important people in our family tree, but then there's quite a lot of other people we don't really notice that much or even pass on to our kids. I find that if you dig, dig enough, you ask, people, ask around, pretty much all white people in this country claim to be descended somewhere from William the Conqueror or Alfred the Great or both. 
right? So you ask anybody, well, of course, if you go back far enough, I'm sure I'm descended from the king. It's always They never say, I'm descended from this random woman who had sex at the back of a pub once and ended up getting pregnant. And, but they never do that, right? Even though probably most of us have got that in our family line as well. So it's just interesting that we tend to weight our family tree towards the famous and the high profile. What Matthew does is the opposite. Matthew introduces five people in this family tree who by rights ought not to be there. Five women, and in an ancient patriarchal genealogy, you just didn't used to do that. You just list the men. That's how many cultures measure their ancestry. But Matthew gives us five women, and all five of them are scandalous in some way to the point that you'd think, why have they been mentioned? Surely the people you'd mention would be the big and impressive people, and instead you've mentioned five women, each one of whom has an air of scandal about them, right? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who's the name of the lady. She's referred to here as the wife of Uriah. We'll find out why in a minute. But Bathsheba and Mary. In other words... A would-be prostitute, an actual prostitute, a Moabite, a woman with whom David committed adultery, and some people would say rapes, and a pregnant teenager. Right? You, some people now call that pregnant teenager the Blessed Virgin Mary, but the point is back then, she's still a pregnant teenager, right? And there was an air of scandal about the whole thing. And so all five of these women who are mentioned have got something about them that you would think somebody trying to make Jesus sound very worthy would try and sweep under the rug. And instead, he puts them in the genealogy of Jesus, even though he doesn't have to. He could have just followed the line back through the kings. What is he doing? What could possibly make Matthew think that the best way of making Jesus credible in a world that already thought he was illegitimate, right? All languages have a nasty word for a person who is conceived when their parents aren't married, right? Whether or not the word still gets used, but in English we have one, and in most languages they do. And people thought Jesus was one of those. And here is Matthew putting in not just one, but five scandalous women in Jesus' genealogy. What could make him possibly think that that was the best way of making Jesus look appealing to the world he was writing to? I think there are probably two answers. And I think the second one in particular is very encouraging and hope-filled for us. I hope it will encourage you. But I think there are two answers. And the first one is that, and this is an odd thing to say, but... Sometimes when someone is challenging you on what you believe, making the problem worse can actually be a very good strategy. So when somebody comes and says, I can't believe you believe that, saying, actually, it's much worse than that, can be quite a good strategy. I call it the Mission Impossible defense. Okay? So in Mission Impossible, you've got a great scene where Tom Cruise is saying, we're going to break into the CIA, we're going to steal this amazing thing, and, and Ving Rhames is going, are you seriously saying we're going to get away with this? I mean, we've got to do that and that and that and that. And Tom Cruise says, relax, Luther. It's far worse than you think. Dum, 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 right? You, that kind of scene happens a lot in those sorts of movies. It happens in Ocean's Eleven as well, just without the music. It's like, it's much harder than you think it is to do. So what you can do sometimes in a discussion, somebody's pushing back on you and saying, I can't believe you think this. And you say, oh, it's much worse than that. I don't just believe that, I believe this. And I think Matthew may be doing that. I do it all the time. So somebody says to me around this time of year, I just, you seem like a thoughtful person, you study a lot, you write all this sort of stuff, and then you come out with something and you say that you believe in angels. You believe in an angel, you believe in an invisible spiritual being who just pops up and takes physical form. I just don't understand how you could possibly take it seriously. And I tend to say, oh, it's far worse than that. 
It's much worse than that. I don't just believe in angels, invisible physical beings who pop up somewhere out of nowhere. I believe in God, Father Almighty, who created everything you've ever seen, and he's invisible and spiritual. In fact, it's worse than that. I believe in Christmas. I believe that that God, that invisible spiritual being, did suddenly take physical flesh, but not in the form of an angel, big and powerful, but in the form of a baby in a manger, and that the whole world should come and worship him. And then he grew up and he died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead. I believe in a dead guy who comes back to life. I believe... It's much worse than you think. I just, I like, I often, and often people are going, oh yeah. In my worldview, an angel is not a big deal. An angel's a very small thing to believe in. If you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you're like, what's the big deal about believing with an angel as well? I do the same thing with discipleship issues. Somebody said to me very recently, how would you answer a teenager who said, I'm worried that if I follow Jesus, it's going to cost me my sex life? I said, oh, it's much worse than that. It's not just going to cost you your sex life. It's going to cost you your whole life. It's going to cost you everything. You're not going to be able to, your sex life, your future life partner, but also your money and your career choice. And every decision you make will be yielded to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you won't be able to have anything that he doesn't want you to have. You are going to be yielded to a lord and master who gets to tell you what to do. And you're going to submit to his word for the rest of your life. Yes, you're going to lose, you're going to lose everything else. It's much worse than you think. Interested? It's just, that's, I quite often do it. And I think Matthew's doing that here. So I think people are coming to Matthew and saying, wait, are you, are you telling me that Jesus' mother wasn't married to Jesus' father when he was conceived? And that that's the God you worship? And Matthew's going, it's far worse than you think. Lots of Jesus. There's not just one of those kind of people in his family. There's five of them. There's loads of scandalous women in Jesus' story. Solomon's mother was violated by his father, who then murdered her husband to cover it up. That's why he refers to her as the wife of Uriah. It's not because Matthew's a sexist and it's not because he's forgotten her name. It's because he's saying, do you remember that David actually murdered Uriah in order to steal his wife? You remember? And that's like the king's great, 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 great grandfather. You remember that? Solomon. It's absolutely scandalous kind of upbringing or origin of this king. Boaz's mum was a prostitute named Rahab. And Boaz himself then married a Moabite woman named Ruth, which back then you really were not meant to do. Even Judah, right? We, the Judahites, the Jews, are still around today, right? Millions of us. And even Judah, their founding father, conceived children with his daughter-in-law, and he only did that because he thought she was a prostitute, which doesn't really make it better. Then a family with as complicated a history as that, you look at that, all of that and you think, okay, well, so Mary's virginity is not actually such a big problem because that kind of thing's happening all the time. The family's filled with scandal in that sense. Matthew is showing us that Jesus' weird family background is actually not as weird as you think if you know the rest of the history. It's like, relax, reader. It's far worse than you think. So I think Matthew is partly doing that. But I think Matthew's doing a second thing which I find much more encouraging, much more hope-filled for ordinary life for us. And I think what Matthew is doing is before he's even introduced us to Jesus and what he says and does, Matthew is preaching to us the scandalous gospel of the mercy of God throughout history, made available to us in the person of Emmanuel, God with us. Right? So he's saying, look at all of these Gentiles, these non-Jews. Most of us in the room are not Jews. And therefore, we wouldn't by rights be in the family of God in the Old Testament. And Matthew is saying, yeah, but look, 
If you look, you'll notice it wasn't only Jewish people. It was also quite a few other Gentiles got to join in the people of God in Jesus' family tree. Look at Tamar. Look at Ruth. Look at Rahab. Some would even say Bathsheba by marriage because she was married to a non-Jew. So look at all of these different people. And look how they were welcomed into the family of God. If God can include them in his family, he can include you as well. Then he's saying, look at all the scandal. Look at all the sin. Look at all the shame that is carried by these women and their families. Look at the incest, the murder, the prostitution, the rape that takes place in Jesus' own family. And he's saying, if God can show mercy to them, he can show mercy to you. He can show mercy to anybody. Right? They're in his family already. And you might be going, Matthew, Matthew, are you seriously telling me that someone like me, a Gentile who has all of this shame and scandal in my past, can be in Jesus' family? And Matthew goes, you already are. Look at all of these women who have been, in spite of those things, included in Jesus' ancestry. No matter what you've done, and no matter what has been done to you, you cannot shock Emmanuel. You can't go up to Jesus and say, you don't understand. I'm disqualified by this, this, and this. He goes, seriously, I've got that in my family too. Look, at, let me tell you about my family tree. And he just lists these people of whom the same kinds of things are true as are true of you and me. Martin Luther said, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. He even includes them in his family tree. He's not ashamed of sinners. He doesn't meet you and then go, oh, man, what am I going to do with this one? He says, no, I've got people like that in my family all the time. In fact, they're some of my ancestors. Let me introduce you to them. Sometimes we hear the phrase, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, as if that means God with humans in general, God with people, God with people a bit like me, but we don't hear it as if it means God with people just like me. God, we sometimes even hear it as God with better people. God with that person, not with me. God with good people. God with Christian-like people who have done good things. But this genealogy is God's way of saying, I'm not just with people. I'm not just with them. I'm with you. God with us, as in you and you. And I am with you. It's like God saying, I'm with people just like that, just as complicated and messy and sinful and shameful as those people. I'm with you. So some of us have committed terrible sins which still haunt us years after we did them. Some of us have done things which you think I, would, I've done, I have, which I would never want anyone else to know. And some, some of you are carrying that, and some of you carrying it years after you did it. And Emmanuel says, I am with you, not just the person to your left, you. Some of us have been left by our partners to bring up kids on our own. And Emmanuel says, I'm with you. I've got a lot of that in my family. I'm with you. Some of us have been shamed, spat on in the street, maybe literally, I don't know, ostracized. We may not have deserved it. We may know very well that we actually did deserve it in a way, like some of these people did. And Emmanuel says, I'm with you. In all of that, I am with you. Almost all of us here are Gentiles, outsiders to the family of God. Absolutely all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory. And Emmanuel says, I can see you. I know you. I'm with you. Some of us have got very complicated families and would wonder whether or not we're ever going to be free of the implications of either what they did or of what was done to them. None of us, I suggest, have a family like this. 
incest, deceit, prostitution, murder, rape, adultery, child sacrifice. Do you know, at least two of the people in that genealogy sacrificed their children at one point. I don't think that would be the story of anybody in this room that all of those things would be true. Jesus is saying, if God, my Father, can show mercy to those people, he can show mercy to anybody, including you. I'm with you, not just with others, you. Oh, Christ is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. He even puts them in his family tree. I think that's the motive, actually, to inviting people to one of our Christmas services. The reason why we have those little flyers is because we want, want people, a lot of people in this city believe in some sort of God, but almost none of them know how merciful he is to people who sin. They just don't know that. If they believe in a God at all, they don't know whether God wants relationship with them, and they aren't sure that he would want to be able to have a relationship with them. And one of the reasons why we invite people at Christmas is to say, I want you to see that the God who made the world is merciful and he loves you. And I'd love you to come to the manger and come to church and just see God put in front of you. And you might think, wow, if that is who God truly is, I want to follow him. But they may not know that yet. And that's one of the reasons why we invite people. We had people respond to the gospel just in this room just an hour and a half ago because there is a good news offer here that people find so extraordinary when they're first confronted with the reality of the grace and mercy of God. So all of these people illustrate twin interlocking truths that are at the center of Christianity. One of them is the scary one, which is that we are all more sinful than we could dare to fear. But the other one is that we are more loved than we could dare to hope. And that those things are true at the same time. So this genealogy doesn't whitewash sin. It says, hey, look at all of these worst hits in Israel's entire history. We, Jesus' family, you and I, are more sinful than we could dare to fear. And at the same time, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. And that those two statements sit together in the gospel. God doesn't just come alongside us like a therapist and say, I'm with you in a kind of, don't worry, I'll hang with you and get, get you through. And you say, oh yeah, that's really great, God. I am really love having someone with me through this. And you're sinning and you're doing all sorts of awful stuff. And God just goes, I'm with you, I'm with you. That's not the way it works. He doesn't just come as God with us, Emmanuel. He comes as the God who will save you from your sins as Jesus. And we need Emmanuel and Jesus in the same person. We need God with us and he'll save you from your sins. And we need them in the same person. Rahab was a prostitute. She didn't, when she was in Jericho about to die, she didn't just need God with her. She needed God who would save her. She didn't just need the presence of God, although she did. She needed rescue. She needed to repent. She needed to hang a little red cord above her window and then trust that God would save her even when the rest of the city was destroyed. If you know that story, if you know the story of Ruth, Ruth didn't just need God with her. She, that was a good start, but she needed to find refuge and redemption under the shelter of the wings of her Redeemer. If you know the story of David murdering a husband, violating his wife, David didn't just need God with us. There are some things you can do where the idea of God with you is actually very scary. Do you think God's with me everywhere I go? That means he was there when I did or said that. But David doesn't just need God with us, Emmanuel. He needs God who will save his people from their sins. He needs Jesus, which is why he writes Psalm 51. Oh God, please save me. Please forgive me. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. There are some things I've done which are so vile and of which I'm so ashamed that the reality of God with us could be very scary as opposed to comforting. 
if it were not for the fact that God with us is also God who forgives us from our sins. I don't just need Emmanuel, I need Jesus. I need them both together. I don't just need to know that God is with me in all of my troubles, I need to know that he has forgiven me for all of my sins. I need both of those truths together, right? I don't just need to know that I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, I need to know that his mercy is going to follow me all the days of my life. I don't just need his presence. Like all of these notorious ancestors, I need his presence, but I also need his grace. And so do you. It's the joy of being Christians is that you come to a God who is not only with you, but he is a God who is going to forgive you all of your sins when you repent and trust in him. And this genealogy shows me before the story of Jesus has even started, before he said anything or done anything or grown up or died for the sins of the world, it shows me that the scandalous mercy of God is written into the family tree of the Messiah before the story even begins. So the way I thought it'd be good to finish would actually be to confess sin together and receive forgiveness. From this, because many of us will see ourselves in this family tree. Some of us will probably see ourselves in one or the other of those individuals, and some will say, well, I haven't done those particular things, but I know that they speak for me in representing some of the things that have, I've done wrong as well. And obviously, it's been a great, it's a great privilege to be able to share communion together a few moments ago, just as we come to receive the goodness of God. But what I want us to do is actually to confess our sins together using a prayer that's been written for us by the Anglicans. They wrote it 500 years ago. It was very thoughtful of them to do it with King's Church London in mind. Um, but it's a great prayer, and it doesn't let us off the hook in a couple of ways. So I wonder, could we just stand together, and I'm going to ask us to pray it together. I'll lead us, but it'll appear on the screen. It's a great prayer because it's not squishy. Sometimes our confession of sin can be a bit squishy. I have, uh, well, I've got three kids. One of them in particular at the moment, I'm needing to get specific confession. He often goes, oh, I'm sorry. I say, no, sorry for what? <laughs> like, sometimes you and I, when we say sorry, we're like, yeah, God, I've made some mistakes. Um, cheers, glad you're right about that. And that's not how this prayer works. This prayer is like, no, I'm going to tell you what you've done, and we're going to confess it together. But what's beautiful about this prayer is that in the service that the Anglicans use, they pray this, and then the pastor speaks words of forgiveness to them and over them. And I'm going to do that when we pray it as well. So this is a good thing to do. Let's pray it together. And then I'm going to declare over you the gospel truth of what has happened for you in Jesus because we've repented. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow men in thought and word and deed. Through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, we are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. And immediately after that, the pastor says to the people, Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for sending us a child who was God with us and who would save his people from their sins. 
Lord, we don't want to be obsessed or preoccupied with our sins. We want to confess them, and then we want to receive the mercy and kindness and grace of God that is ours in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would live lives this week as saints liberated from our sins because we know the scandalous mercy of God and that we would therefore live lives of obedience and love and hope and holiness because we know how much you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for this wandered child who embodies for us the mercy and the goodness of God. And we pray that this Christmas we would once again come face to face with his mercy and his love and the power of God to save us from our sins. And we pray this in his name. Amen.